sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We have a very special topic for you today. We're going to talk about Christian business owners wanting to incorporate faith into the workplace and the right and wrong ways to do that safely. Our guest today, Stephanie Taub, is Senior Counsel at First Liberty Institute, uh, one of the nation's foremost religious liberty organizations on the web at First liberty.org. Stephanie, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Wonderful. Thank you for having me on. So Christians who want to incorporate faith in the workplace, maybe they want to have a, a Bible study or, you know, have prayer to start the day, they're exposed to some risks, aren't they? That's exactly right. So we do get questions very frequently from business leaders of faith at various organizations across the country. So, and it really, the advice really varies depending on what kind of an organization that you're in and what are your particular challenges and even the state that you're in. So it's really difficult to give clear black and white rules in this area to business leaders of faith who want to just go about their day integrating their their faith, integrating their beliefs into their work. And so there's a lot of fact-specific questions, a lot of different scenarios to take into account, but happy to talk about some general principles and some things to keep in mind that might come up for business leaders. Well, at least in my mind, the risk is that some employees may feel excluded or less than, and eventually if they have to be let go, they may want to bring a some kind of religious discrimination claim, right? Yeah, I'd say the threat of employment discrimination lawsuits is probably one of the most significant when we're talking when we're talking to business leaders, and so they really need to be, I guess, to be careful. So if you are at a Christian nonprofit, for example, and if you work, if you're leading a church or a religious school, then you're entitled to much more religious liberty protections than you are if you're working for a for-profit organization. And if you're at a for-profit organization, then you can't discriminate on the basis of religion or um, various other protected classes. So you do have to be much more careful about that. At the same time, there are certain um, certain things that you can do. So certain things that you can do. So you mentioned the Bible study, which is a great example. So there's some pretty clear case law that you can't make a Bible study mandatory for your employees. And um, whether, so that's on the clearer side. If you're talking about a for-profit business, you can't have mandatory Bible studies. Um, you're probably, depending on your jurisdiction, you might be able to have a um, voluntary Bible study that for some employees at the um, during non-working hours in the same way that you're allowed to have other sorts of voluntary religious groups. And so, but there are, um, there's a lot of fact-intensive questions when you're talking about, as you mentioned, the risks of creating a hostile work environment. So all of these cases are analyzed on a totality of the circumstances basis, and they will take a look at everything to see if you're if you're um, cultivating allegedly a hostile work environment. So some things to keep in mind is that the strongest, the leading case here is Hobby Lobby. 
for um, for the proposition that you don't give up all of your religious liberty rights just by becoming by starting a business. So business owners, particularly if you're a small business owner, like a sole proprietorship or a closely held business, you do have religious freedom rights. And the, the federal government can't infringe on those rights unless it has a can't infringe on your religious beliefs unless it has a I mean, strict scrutiny, it has a compelling reason that's narrowly tailored to achieve its ends. And so, so you do have, and in the Hobby Lobby case, that was a case that was in the context of um, Hobby Lobby um, not paying um, for insurance for something that goes against its sincerely held religious beliefs, abortifacient drugs. Well, all right, but I'm thinking, you know, back to the Bible study example, isn't the, you know, the challenge for the business owner to communicate clearly the voluntary nature of it? And to make, you know, to make it comfortable for employees either to participate or not to participate. Uh, and, and so they don't feel legitimately like they're somehow, you know, being ostracized or that there's the in group. And if you're not part of the Bible study, you know, there's no future for you in the company, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Just if it's treated equally as other employee groups, other and it's sure that it's a completely voluntary thing that you're not, for instance, assigning promotions based on and based on membership in the group or anything like that, um, then you're that would probably be a safer practice. And some some interesting. There are several companies that do uh, integrate their faith into their values, into their culture, into their mission statement. Um, so, for instance, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, JCPenney. Um, so um, Chick-fil-A is one of their purpose statements is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us. And Hobby Lobby says they're committed to honoring the Lord in all they do by operating a company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. And so these sorts of um, there haven't been a lot of cases that specifically challenge the mission statement. But it seems it seems like these sorts of things, having faith inspired mission statements, value statements, donating to faith based charities is a similar sort of thing as you have other corporations are able to have corporate values, corporate culture, whether that comes from religion or whether it comes from not. You just have to be very, very careful not to discriminate against people of other religious faiths or of no religious faith that um, that may not agree with your particular values. Right, because of course, where churches or religious nonprofits have rights to select leadership and employees, for that matter, based on upholding the beliefs and values of the sponsoring religion, that's not the same. In fact, uh, there was the old uh, Minnesota sports and health case from I want to say back in the '80s that made it clear that uh, you know to to operate a for-profit business explicitly hiring only Christians, that was not going to fly. That was uh, going to be held to be discriminatory and unlawful under Christian laws. Uh, so that's that's been the case for you know 30 or 40 years now that that for-profit businesses you know really have to operate in a non-discriminatory manner. But the challenge for the business owner is, well, can you somehow incorporate faith practices and still avoid the risk of being or vulnerable as as somehow being discriminatory, right? Right. And 
I mean, candidly, there, there's always, it might be impossible to avoid, to avoid all risks, but you should be able to, as long as you're being very careful that you're treating everyone equally, that you're not discriminating, that this is um, what's inspiring your culture, that should fall on the appropriate side of the line. I'm, I wish I had more clear black and white mm-hmm. answers to these questions, but maybe we'll get, uh, we'll get answers to these questions in the not too distant future. Well, look, they tend to be fact-specific. They also deal with the kind of the human dimension. I remember speaking with a human resources professional director for a large hospital many years ago who said that they had a very good record of never being sued for discrimination. And the reason she attributed that is every time they had to fire somebody, they had an exit interview, they sat the person down, and made sure that they understood, you know, why they were being let go, that they had a chance to ask questions, to say their piece, you know, and to do it in a way that was, um, you know, respectful of the individual. So if somebody knows this is the employer's perspective, this is what the employer thinks you did wrong and why they're letting you go, you know, are there always going to be a certain number of unscrupulous people who, you know, they'll use your faith as your weak link against you and they'll come after you. You can't avoid that risk. I guess the way you avoid that risk is by being more careful in who you hire in the first place, right? And try to screen your uh, employees. But there are things that you can do to protect yourself. A lot of times we see in the we see these questions come up in organizations that are sort of borderline religious. So one of the important threshold questions is, is your organization actually a religious organization? Most companies are either they're secular or they're clearly religious, but there are some charities, for example, that used to be religious, but then over the years migrated and are no longer really religious. So that's one of the, the threshold questions here is to whether you can make religion a part of you expressly a part of whether you can um, expressly a part of your employment requirements or not is whether you are count as a religious employer for the purposes of Title Seven. Well, that sounds like the. Uh... Was it the King Kamehameha Schools case out of Hawaii and whether the school was legitimately a Protestant school and could hire Christian faculty? But uh, when you said borderline, I'm scratching my head. What is a borderline religious you know, entity? And, uh, yeah, there might be some, I suppose. Can you think of another example? Yeah. Yeah, one of the leading cases, like World Vision, which um, they held that that was a religious organization. But some um, it received a challenge. And then you might think of other cases in that, like Salvation Army or, or other organizations like that. Um, and so you'd be surprised. Well, for those who know World Vision at all, they know that this really is a very explicitly Christian organization. But they're not first and foremost, you know, engaged in religious teaching or evangelism or anything like that. World Vision serves, what, children? and. Uh, development and relief type of work. Um, It's a wonderful job. Their uh, chief counsel is an old friend of mine from Christian Legal Society days years ago. That's exactly right. But sometimes you'll see a federal government, for example, trying to make very narrow definitions of who counts as a religious organization and try to use the fact that you're giving relief to everyone, regardless of religion. You're trying to help everyone um, and not just your your parishioners against you to say, oh, no, you can't really because you're serving non-Christians. 
But fortunately, in the World Vision case, they did recognize that you were a religious, um, you were a religious organization. For an example of the um, the other way, you have the uh, the federal government in the series of contraceptive mandate cases that initially had a very very restrictive definition of who counts as a religious organization, such that you really only have to be serving your own people mm-hmm. in order to count as a a church, for example. Um, but then. They don't realize that so many people of faith feel called to serve everyone, and that's just part of their religious mission. Well, there certainly is a lot of mischief over trying to define religion narrowly and to push religious freedom back. I remember a a colleague, one of our legal conferences, uh, characterized the separation of church and state, that the wall of separation was basically pushing the church further and further back inside the church and when you step outside the church to carry out ministry in the community somehow legally you were no longer the church you were no longer religious because you were operating a hospital or a school or doing welfare charitable work in the community and that's you know that's what christians do is they engage in healing and teaching and serving. That's what Jesus has called us to, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a a great visual. We do see the government taking over more and more spheres. And as it does so, it pushes religion especially out to the sidelines. So I think we need to push that wall of separation back to a more balanced perspective. Well, we've been talking with Stephanie Taub, Senior Counsel at First Liberty Institute about of the plight of Christian business owners trying to incorporate faith into their business without running too much risk. I think in closing, Stephanie, I would say it's worth the risk. You know, you have to do the right thing and, you know, be who you are as a Christian. And, you know, yeah, there's going to be some risk, but there are ways to minimize it. Anyway, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom Spring today, Stephanie. Thank you. And I'm sure if, if you or listeners have questions, firstliberty.org is a good resource for you. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rana. Until next week, let freedom ring.